You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. 1 Samuel 8, 1-18 When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them." So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. This is the word of the Lord. Now turn to Matthew twenty-two, fifteen through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, And teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought to him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus, we begin today again by confessing that you are Lord. You're king. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to you. Um, our only hope is in you, our only righteousness is in you, our only, um, 
how our only wisdom is to be found in you. So we begin first, before we look at this text, before we examine what, is, what, what presidents and governments and legislators and judges are for, we begin by confessing and believing and, 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 and saying that all of that must be grounded in this fundamental confession, that you are king. In your name we pray, amen. We began last week by examining um, kind of the nature of the whole universe. Um, it was an uh, ambitious attempt. In other words, what we began to talk about last week was not just one tenant, kind of one religious tenant, but we asked the question, what is the world like? What is the universe like? And what we saw in light of Revelation 4 and 5 is that the center of all of reality is a throne. At the center of all of reality is authority. At the center of all reality is Um, an authority to whom is owed all allegiance, all praise, all glory, all honor. In other words, the world is organized around the nature of authority and therefore around hierarchies of authority. It's hardwired into the way that the world is built. In other words, there's no avoiding it. You can rail against it or you can orient your life to cut with the grain. First time I smoked a brisket, I didn't know about this grain thing. And so I cut against the grain. And I soon had chopped beef and not brisket. And it wasn't very well chopped beef. It was mostly just ugly. That can be your life. (laughs) It can be either cut with the grain, oriented towards the way that God has designed the universe, or... It can be poorly cut brisket. Just gross looking. Maybe it just still tastes good. But to understand that, you must understand that the center of reality is a throne, is a Lord, is a, a, a way of understanding that there is in the world a structures of authority or hierarchies or, or whatever um, uh, label we want to put on it. Um, Um, That is one of the ways that we understand how the world has been designed. So we saw that at the center of that design, above all hierarchies, above all claims to authority, above all claims to lordship, um, is the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That there is a God who reigns, who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. He is not one religious option in a world of religious options with kind of the rest of secular living out, kind of out from under those religious questions, um, nor is he merely one option in the realm of all options, but rather the Christian confession is that Jesus Christ rules over everything. His authority is valid everywhere. There is no one anywhere who will not have to answer to his authority. There is no law passed by any legislator anywhere that ultimately is not to be evaluated under the question of does Jesus like this law or does he hate this law? Like those are valid, important, dare I say vital political questions to ask. You should evaluate the judgments of judges 
looking at things like Roe versus Wade and ask the question, does God like their judgments? Does he agree with them? Do they conform to his design for reality or are they in rebellion against him? And the answer that you absolutely cannot give is God is disinterested in those things. He's absolutely interested. He likes them or he doesn't. He agrees with them or he doesn't. He hates them or he doesn't. That can be applied to every single facet of authority. Now, that was where we began last week. That's where we're going to end this week is the reign of Jesus, the good reign of Jesus, the gracious reign of Jesus over everything. But now we move into kind of really the meat of the next three weeks, which is asking the question, how is the authority of Jesus exercised or implemented in the world around us? In other words, if Jesus is Lord, one of the patterns we see established in Scripture is that the authority of God is put into action, it's put into play, it's implemented or intended to be implemented on the earth through mankind. So, for instance, when you go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and you see God creating a world, creating a garden where man's to worship and commune with God, creating a land that he's to work and to keep or cause it to be fruitful. He's commanded to, be mul- to multiply, to fill the earth. Um, it, it's said to us that, that Adam is the image of God. Now theologians have debated what image means forever. Does it mean opposable thumbs? Does it mean rationality and reason? Does it mean my incredible good looks? What, what does it mean? Um, one of the things that we know it means is um, that they bear the authority of God on the earth. So kings would be spoken of in the ancient world as the images of God. In other words, or, or the sons of God, both. The idea being that, that the authority of God is implemented, it's put into practice, it, it's, it's put into play in the world through mankind, through actual actions or inaction done by men and women living their lives. Which is to say, all exercises of authority will either be a demonstration, an accurate reflection of the nature and the character and the authority of God, or it will be blasphemous. Um, we will talk about this the last week as we talk about husbands and fathers and the language that's used in Ephesians 5 is that a husband is the head of his wife even as Christ is the head of his church. Um, and, and there is given to the husband in a marriage a, a kind of authority that will always preach or reflect on the nature of Christ. He will either do so faithfully, accurately representing the graciousness of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the justice of Christ, or his actions will lie 
or be blasphemous about the nature of Christ. Well, this is true of every authority structure established by God. And we see in Scripture that there are three fundamental authority structures or or hierarchies or places where the authority of God is to be exercised or implemented on the earth. And those three, which we're going to walk through over the next three weeks, today, the authority of the magistrate, or the government, the king. We don't have kings, so the president and the legislature and the courts. That's authority, we're going to see, is established by God, is subject to God, and has a very specific role in the world. Secondly, what we're going to talk about next week is the authority established in the local church, in the church itself. God has established in the church real authority, real hierarchy, to, to, to demonstrate and to implement, to be subject to the authority and the reign of God. And in the final week, the authority established in the home. So, so husbands and wives, fathers and mothers over children. So we're going to talk about that over those three weeks. These are the three governments or orders of authority that are established, we see, in Scripture through which God implements or puts into play his authority on the earth. Now, one of the things you'll notice I didn't say is your job, your workplace. It's not one of the established governments given to us by God. And yet it's interesting, in an economy like ours, how desperately workplaces are trying to become a fourth authority structure in the world. So you'll find lots and lots of jobs asking you for um, the loyalty you would give your family, for instance. Like, come work for us. We're a big family. It's weird. Let's just admit that's weird. That would have been really weird to your grandfather. Would you say that? Is that rare? Like here's a purely economic relationship in which they are asking for you to give them the loyalty that you would give to your parents or your children. That's creepy. Now what we have are three governments, and all three governments, by the way, actually um, God calls us to a certain kind of loyalty to those institutions, so you should have um, a good God-honoring loyalty to your nation. Um, so, so, so patriotism is not a sin, it's good. It's a, it's a good thing. It has to be rightly ordered. It has to be subject to the authority of God. But patriotism is a good thing. You should have loyalty to your church. Aha! You should be loyal to your church. Third, you absolutely should be loyal to your family, to one another in your family, to your brothers and your sisters and your parents. Those are loyalties that are actually obligations that are given to you by God as he's established these three governments, these three ways of ordering the world. So today, we come to the question of the civil magistrate of the government. I thought we'd just start off with the hardest one first. 
the one that's been most contested, most argued about, most confu- the church has been, I believe, most confused about uh, over the last few years. For whatever reason, um, pres- the President Trump broke everyone's brain on all sides. Um, and so we've become, it, it seems to me, extremely confused in the church, um, particularly in the church's actions, about what kind of authority do the, does the magistrate have. And so you have um, some, on the one hand, um, that have argued that, you know, they're just pure blood lib- libertarians, um, who the government has no authority, um, we should get rid of governments, almost anarchic, um, like the, the, the government doesn't have any real authority, and there's just been this kind of rise in increasing degrees of no tolerance, no place for, no vision for um, what the role of the civil magistrate or presidents and legislatures and courts actually are in the world. On the other hand, you've had Christians saying things like, so long as a law or an ordinance does not directly contradict an explicit teaching of Scripture, you're obligated to obey it. And this is said from pulpits and with, from statements from churches as though this is the most obvious thing in the world when it's actually contrary to almost everything the church has taught about the relationship between the church and the government for the last 2,000 years. So you've had both of these reactions um, This group over here saying, if the government says it, so long as I don't have an explicit command in the Bible, sometimes if I do, frankly, when churches were ordered to be shut, you have an explicit command in Scripture that do not forsake, don't stop, don't get rid of ever, the gathering together for worship from Hebrews. Churches said, no, we're actually obligated before God to stop gathering because the government said to. So sometimes even when you have an explicit statement from Scripture, um, churches have said, if the government says that they represent the highest authority, we must obey them unless God has explicitly stated otherwise. And on this side, again, you have those who see no place, no role, no God-given role for the state. So but we're going to concentrate today on Matthew chapter 22. Um, with, with some very, very simple observations from Jesus' statement. But the two texts, really, that you need to be aware of, particularly in the New Testament, um, that outline for us um, the nature of the, this hierarchy, this, this authority um, given to us, is, is Matthew 22, and, the, and there's parallels um, in all three of the synoptic gospels about the, uh, with this story in them. Um, the other one is Romans 13, which we looked at, feels like ages ago, whenever that was. Ages and ages ago, probably half a year ago, um, and, um, and 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 so to understand both of these texts, um, Jesus, as he says a thing like "render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar," he, he's he's grounding our understanding of how we should live with in relationship to political authorities in a very particular time and place, and it's actually really important for us to understand what's happening. Um, within the, the time period of Jesus' day. And then the same thing with Paul, as he talks about um, submitting to and to honoring um, the establishment of the, the, the government authorities or Caesar. Um, it, it's actually important for us to understand and appreciate um, where it is and what's happening historically 
um, where and when they said these things. And so um, I want you to keep both those texts in mind, but, but keeping those in mind, um, we're going to do just a tad bit of Roman history. Is it okay? Okay. So um, first you have the Caesar, we're the first one we're going to talk about. Um, you have Caesar Augustus. Augustus is Caesar. He's the emperor. Um, when Jesus is born, um, when the census is sent out and Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem, um, you have Augustus. And what you have in Augustus is something that is not new at all, but carries through in our day. You have Augustus with rather glorious eschatological goals or pretensions. Augustus claims to be the one who will bring peace and prosperity to the whole world. After his death, the Roman Empire, looking back on him and his claims and his relative success towards those claims, named him a god worthy of worship. So you have Augustus first, and, and, and neither one of the statements that we have from Matthew 22 or Romans 13 is said um, during Augustus' reign. Like, that's not the, the common parlance of the empire when these statements are made. But it is important to note um, that the claims that Augustus makes, in other words, what he sets out to do is not merely to, to punish evildoers, It's not merely to carve out space for people to live in liberty and to take care of their families and to do the things that God had called them to do. What he actually sets out to do is to establish a government that produces righteousness, that produces justice, that produces flourishing, that produces prosperity. Does that sound normal to you? I would dare say it's the presumed posture of most governments now. The claim that, not that we have a God-given role and a God-given lane and a God-given authority to function in, but rather the claim that we will make America great again. I went through and I forgot to bring it, wrote down a bunch of uh, presidential campaign slogans from the um, the last 20 years. And there were some hilarious ones. Uh, my favorite was Ross Perot, uh, Make Ross Boss. <laughs> Pretty simple. Oh, but you had, uh, I mean, George W. Bush running on No Child Left Behind. Uh, you had um, Obama. Hope. I mean, we have, uh, like, every presidential campaign is just marked by not like the, the presidential campaign that I think the Bible would most advocate for, we will leave you alone. Instead, the presidential campaign is, we will change the world. We will make the world a better place. We will bring prosperity. Um, there was one, uh, it was Hoover. Um, his was uh, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. <laughs> oh, please No. Although it would be nice, I would take a car. So, um, like, there, there is kind of built in, you see it with Augustus, but you see it carrying on and on and on and on and on. And it, 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 it flows from this idea that if, if you begin to deny or neglect the idea that there is a God in whom all salvation, all hope, all wisdom, all grace comes from, 
then you have to look to something else for salvation. And so the goal of government, which is arguably the most powerful of the three institutions that God established, seems like the most likely likely candidate, candidate, right? Like you rarely come to church and think, you know what? Trinity Church Denver, we will bring prosperity to everyone. We will end all injustice. It's just not normally what you do. You don't go home, sit on the couch, see your kids, step on Legos and cuss, whatever happens at your home on a Sunday afternoon, and think, you know what, this right here, this, this is going to end all injustice. You just don't. But when you think of the government, and you think of almost what feels like endless resources and tanks, I don't know why I always think of tanks, but tanks are awesome. And, and, and you think of tanks and you think of endless resources and this extremely efficient bureaucracy. Um, you think, I'm just joking, um, you, you think this, this could potentially establish justice and prosperity. It could actually produce good. That's the tendency. And so what you see arising with Augustus, it actually is before Augustus as well, but actually continuing. And I think we've reached kind of the, the most like glorious um, expression of it, if glorious is the right word, um, this idea that you should put your hope in candidate X, whatever candidate it is, in the government. The government can solve health crises. The government can keep you from dying. The government, government can eliminate poverty. The government can eliminate racism. The government can eliminate sin. The government can eliminate pain. The government can eliminate all of these things, and bring about prosperity. And that only arises when you've lost faith in God. And what's terrifying to me is we have a nation full of Christians on the right and on the left who believe that salvation is somehow achieved through the right political arrangements. So we leave heaven and some sort of disembodied state to God. But our hope in the here and now is the government. It's not the authority that they've been given. It's not the power that they've been given. So you have Augustus. Augustus um, is replaced by Tiberius. Tiberius had slightly more tempered pretensions than Augustus did. Then you move from Tiberius to Caligula, who was insane, murderous, horrible, evil. He really wanted um, them to kind of, the the tradition at that point, um, after Augustus was, after an emperor died, they would declare him to be God, but he couldn't be a God while he was on earth. So he'd become a God after Caligula really worked hard to push that, to say, no, we should start declaring emperors gods now. Um, he was truly insane, truly murderous, truly unjust, truly wicked, um, really, really terrible. And then you have Claudius and the early Nero. Um, Jesus, by the way, is uh, writing, in Ma- um, as he's speaking in Matthew 22, um, the uh, Caesar at the time would have been Tiberius. Uh, so you still had kind of a pretentious government. You had this government that um, was still presuming to kind of carry on um, Augustus's legacy, but it was a little bit more, actually way more tempered um, in its ambitions. Um, 
Paul, Paul, as he's writing in Romans 13, is actually writing during the early part of Nero's reign. And, and what's common to both of these, um, uh, both when Jesus is writing, is you have kind of a, a chat chastened government um, taking its place. So Augustus uh, kind of had all these hopes, all these dreams about what he was going to accomplish on the earth. Um, and then Tiberius kind of starts tempering those down, um, trying to kind of uh, whittle down the ambitions of the Roman government um, and the Roman emperor. And, and then the same thing is happening with early Nero. Nero, um, and the early part of his reign, is a good and relatively just king um, as far as pagans go. Um, he's not, at least in the first part of his reign, uh, really between 55 and 58 AD, he's not really having um, lots and lots of people killed. Um, he's not persecuting Christians. Um, he, he's not kind of doing a lot of self-grandizing um, building projects. Um, he's just ruling and kind of lifting a lot of the restrictions and the controls that had been in place prior to him. Um, and then, as I've talked about before, in 59 AD, he kills his mom, um, and then he becomes, much like Caligula, uh, attacking and killing all of his enemies um, and, and really clamping down. Um, the one thing there is don't elect a president who killed his mom. So that's kind of what Paul and Jesus, Jesus is speaking into and Paul is writing into. And so as Paul's writing Romans 13, um, what he says is, look, um, the government exists to punish evildoers. The government's been given the sword by God um, to, to do one fundamental work. It's to protect the, 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 the good, the just um, of God's people, and it does so by punishing evil. Um, and then, uh, and, and he's doing so at a time when basically that's what Nero's doing. And so Paul's writing into a time, a, a, a moment in Roman history, which is just about to collapse, probably in about a year is going to collapse, um, in which the, the, the government was, while not consciously subject to the rule of God, was essentially doing the thing that Paul describes here um, in its rule, in exercising its authority. And as Jesus speaks in Matthew 22, you have a government that's still making grand claims about its authority in the world and its refusal to acknowledge the authority of God. Then Jesus says what we're going to look at for the rest of our time. He says in Matthew 22, the setting here is um, Jesus has just marched into Jerusalem. Um, The people are hailing him as king, as the son of David. And his enemies now come to trap him. One of the best ways to trap someone under the Roman um, rule is to ask them who's in charge. Particularly to ask a Jew who's in charge. So I just want to read the story to you again. It says in verse 17, Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, This is where we're going to focus. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So, Very simple sermon. Three observations. One, I'm just going to lay them out for you. One, there are things that belong to Caesar. 
right? See that in the text? Jesus said, you should give to Caesar things that belong to Caesar. You should render unto him. You should give him. You should honor him. Um, You should do the things that God has ordained belongs to Caesar. Two, there are things that do not belong to Caesar. Third, there are things that belong to God. Three observations. Let's expand on them a bit, and we'll be done. First, there are things that belong to Caesar. I want to qualify that first with Caesar doesn't get to determine what belongs to Caesar. Okay? In other words, there's an objective reality ordered in the way that the world is designed by God. Certain things belong to Caesar, but it's not whatever Caesar says belongs to Caesar gets to belong to Caesar It's what God says belongs to Caesar, belongs to Caesar. In other words, one of the key ways we maintain our fundamental loyalty to the reign and the authority of Jesus is by recognizing what he gives to Caesar and what he doesn't give to Caesar. Rather than listening to and allotting to Caesar whatever it is that Caesar claims belongs to Caesar. So Caesar claims things from you that do not belong to him. By order of God, then they don't belong to him. Um, Traditionally, uh, we'll we'll get into what doesn't belong to Caesar in a minute. So so you need to understand this is different than kind of the common, at least modern, like the last 40 or 50 years, language of obey everything except insofar as it does not directly contradict the command of Scripture. This idea that we talked about earlier, that, that, um, that Christians would say you should obey everything that Caesar says so long as what he says doesn't directly contradict Scripture. This is different. This is saying that no, Caesar has a lane. He has a particular realm of authority. He has a particular kind of authority and a way of executing that authority that has been given to him by God. And when he exercises that authority in that realm, in the way that's been ordained by him, um, by God, you must be subject to him. Why must you be subject to him? Because you're subject to God. God has ordained this authority to function in this way. Which is to say, the group we were criticizing earlier, you like hardcore, burn down the government, borderline anarchist libertarians, you must honor the government. It's established by God for your good. Like Caesar has a role. The president has a role. The vice president has a role. Judges have roles. Senators have roles. Um, Like they are, are established by God to do something in the world and the command of Jesus is the things that have been given to them, given to them by God, you must render to them or you're actually in rebellion against God. Which means that as we begin to talk about the things that don't belong to Caesar, the times in which Christians are called to resist the authority of Caesar, those conversations should not be light ones. They should be 
marked by gravity and seriousness and weight. We don't quickly and easily and dismissively rebel against the authorities established by God in the world. We do so thoughtfully, we do so carefully, we do so with a deep dependence on God, and we maybe do so with a fair amount of trembling. In other words, you don't want to get this wrong. Because Jesus says there are things that belong to Caesar. The clearest example of what that is, is Romans 13, where they are given the sword to punish evildoers. There is um, a call from the government um, that they are, they, they are established to, to, to build a society in which the righteous can flourish, righteousness itself can flourish, in which they establish and they defend a standard of justice. In other words, they create this, the, 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 um, the circumstances necessary for life and, pro- and property and liberty. They are given to protect the common good. We're going to talk about um, what those are in a moment. But, but you need to see that the, the government is given, the magistrate is given authority that is a positive good, not just a necessary evil. It's established by God for the good of God's people. Now, second observation. There are things that don't belong to Caesar. Now, in a secular world, in a world that, where God has been eliminated from public discourse, um, where uh, God has been kind of relegated to, or Christianity has been relegated to, um, kind of your own private heart religion, um, and the rest of life is lived out here, um, there, there are really no constraints placed upon the role of government. Um, and, and so it runs wild trying to produce salvation, or some form of salvation, or at least the language of salvation. Um, but that's not what Jesus says. You say, there are things that are to be rendered to Caesar, which means there are things that are not to be rendered to Caesar. And historically, within the Christian tradition, um, it, that has been life and property and liberty. Now, liberty is a, a tricky one, because we tend to define liberty, or um, as, as it's talked about in the Declaration of Independence as the pursuit of happiness, as the freedom to do whatever you want. That's not historically, anyway, what liberty has actually meant. What liberty has meant is um, the freedom to the freedom from constraints, which would keep you from obeying the divine law, the, um, uh, the, the will of God. And so the, the things that have not belonged to Caesar, in fact, rather, Caesar has been charged with protecting um, by God historically, as the church has understood this, is life. It must defend a right, a right given by God to life. This is the foundation, by the way, of all of the abortion talk, which I I would say, I pray that the ruling that was leaked this week comes about. It is an objective and real good, at least the beginnings of a good, and that the government would not protect the right to not defend life. So we're just like step one. It's actually a really, really small step. They're not actually positively defending life. They're actually just eliminating the necessity of not protecting life. But life and property that you are given by God things, things that are your responsibility um, to, to, to wield, to grow, to use generously, and third, liberty. You, you can never be 
kept from acting in accordance with divine law, the will of God. So here's the thing. You are under obligation to not give to Caesar the things that don't belong to Caesar. You must honor Caesar for what Caesar's been given to do. You must honor the government for the things that God has given the government to do. You should do respect to the government, the, way, the things that the government has given to do. You should have a posture of celebrating the good and longing for the good that the government has been given to do. And you are absolutely obligated to not give him what does not belong to him. So first observation, there are things that positively belong to Caesar. They're given to him by God. Secondly, there are things that don't belong to Caesar. And then third, Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's. There are things that belong to him. We learn from Romans 13 that this doesn't mean that there are God things and there are government things. This means, from Romans 13, everything is God's and some of those things are subject to ruling authorities. And this is profoundly important and good news. the confession that Jesus is Lord, the confession that we talked about last week, that the center of reality is a throne and one who is seated on that throne and one who bears all authority in heaven and on earth is profoundly and glorious good news. And here's why. The answer answer to tyranny, the answer to um, authority gone crazy, kind of uh, authority wielded in areas where they don't have authority. So um, think about it this way. If I came to your house um, and issued an edict, kind of nailed it to your doors. Um, um, As your pastor, I decree that all of you men must wear red high heels every Sunday. Well, the language that's used to describe the authority of government, the same exact kind of uh, language is used to describe the authority of elders and pastors in Hebrews 13. Um, Therefore, if you're going to apply the principle, um, you, Derek, should obey everything I decree so long as it's not contrary, directly contrary to an explicit teaching in Scripture. Scripture nowhere explicitly teaches that you cannot wear red high heels. Therefore, I nailed it to your door. You must obey my authority. That would be a silly thing. Obviously. But on what kind of understanding of the nature of authority would we have Um, to tell Derek, like, hey, actually, you don't have to wear red heels. Well, the answer to that is that Brian, as your pastor and elder, hasn't been given authority by God to tell you what kind of shoes you wear. I've been given authority by God over word and sacrament to faithfully hold out this word and teach it um, and to deliver to you bread and wine and the kind of discipleship that accompanies those things. 
And for me to go outside of those lines is tyranny. So we begin by acknowledging that God is the highest authority. And whenever, um, whenever an authoritative, uh, maybe a, a president or, or a health commissioner um, or a state legislature issues a decree, issues a law that goes outside or is contrary to um, the, 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 the field of authority given to them by God, like we have a line of appeal. We appeal to God. It means there's an answer to tyranny. There's an answer to evil rulers. And the one that we appeal to is God. Now that may feel abstract to you, um, but, but, but trust me, in Scripture it is the most concrete thing in the world. When you find yourself under the rule, uh, oppressive rule, tyrannical rule, evil rule, um, there is first a call to get on our knees and appeal to the highest, to appeal to God who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. It is glorious good news to know that human rulers, with all of their sin all of their imperfections. Um, As Samuel warns the people of Israel, all their proclivities to God-like power. There is someone who is over them, who the scriptures tell us lifts up some, um, some rulers and puts down others. God is the one who does that. And it is good, good, good to know that at the end of the day, it is not tyranny And secondly, one of the reoccurring themes every time um, uh, the political powers that be presume to bring about um, some some sort of utopian salvation in the world, whether that's communist Russia, whether that's that's Augustus's Rome, um, whether it's kind of this weird thing that's uh, progressing in our day, um, one of the things that is revealed over and over and over again is the impotence of the state to do it. In other words, the state is... um, Justin and I were working on a truck uh, this week. We were trying to get off this bracket that was on the frame. And uh, he was using a screwdriver to hammer into the frame. And his screwdriver was not very good at going into the frame. He no longer has a screwdriver. I mean, he does, but you can't use it for doing anything. Um, the, the, the idea is that like, like if, you, if you hammer on a screwdriver like it's a wedge, it's not going to come out a good, very good, useful screwdriver. Um, uh, the government is a tool. It's an absolutely a tool, a useful tool, an important tool, a valid tool, a tool that we need to honor. But if it is used to produce prosperity, if it's used to produce righteousness, it's like a screwdriver you're trying to use as a wedge and it's not going to work. And one of the things that we see in history is any time um, the magistrate is used in a way that it's not designed to be used for, it's impotent. It doesn't work. And yet, here's the good news. We, we don't, there's an answer to the impotent of, of messianic government. That answer is Jesus. That answer is God and his rule and his reign and ordering our lives according to his reign and according to his grace. 
There's an answer to the injustice of the state, and it's the justice of God. There's an answer to the um, kind of the sprawling laws of the state, and it's the glorious and simple law of God. And at the end of the day, um, there's an answer to the harshness of the justice of the state, and it is the grace and the mercy of God given to us in Jesus Christ. It is glorious, marvelous news. And I say this to you, to, to those of you who are here today who, who perhaps don't believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't worship God, you don't acknowledge his authority over heaven and earth, all you have is the best we can produce in Washington, D.C. or down the street here. And good luck. But we believe there's a throne in heaven. There's a God who rules over all, who is good and just. And here's the greatest thing in the world. He doesn't just demand righteousness. He produces it. He gives it. So we worship Jesus Christ. We render unto Caesar what's been given to Caesar by God. We keep and maintain the things that have been given to us by God and ultimately we render to God what belongs to him, which is everything. Our whole lives, our children, our money, our property, our liberty, they all belong to him. Let's pray and prepare for communion. So Father, what a good and gracious thing. You and your mercy take traitors like us, those who've rebelled against your good law and your good rule, um, and you call us to yourself through the work of your son and by the power of your spirit. And you don't call us merely to ourselves to forgive us and then send us out to see how we're doing. But rather you call us to yourself, you forgive us, you give us a new name, and you sit us at the table of the king to eat bread and to drink wine and to celebrate together your good reign over all things. So God, in this world, in this moment, when so many politicians claim an authority and a power that only belongs to you, may God, may this meal be a weekly testimony to, to your unique and absolute supremacy and your unique ability to produce good and righteousness and justice and mercy. May it be a testimony, a table set in the midst of those who would presume to be gods, that you alone are God, that all authority belongs to Jesus and everyone everywhere, all rulers everywhere will answer to him. In his glorious name we pray, amen.